Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. In current times, with all the challenges of a global pandemic and what that means for us as we navigate work, family, isolation, sickness and sanity, and all in lockdown for some of us, the notion of kindness must be an anecdote for some of that which we struggle. Today, I'm speaking to Hugh McKay, a highly regarded social psychologist and researcher and the best-selling author of 22 books, including eight novels. His latest book, called The Kindness Revolution, was published this year. He has a 60-year career in social research and was also a weekly newspaper columnist for over 25 years. Hugh is currently an honorary professor in the Research School of Psychology at the Australian National University and a patron of the Asylum Seekers Centre. Among other honorary appointments, he has been Deputy Chairman for the Australian Council of the Arts, the inaugural Chairman of the ACT Government's Community Inclusion Board and an honorary professor at Macquarie, Wollongong and Charles Sturt Universities. Hugh is a Fellow of the Australian Psychological Society and the Royal Society of New South Wales. In recognition of his pioneering work in social research, he's been awarded honorary doctorates by Charles Sturt, Macquarie, New South Wales, Western Sydney and Wollongong Universities, and he was appointed an officer of the Order of Australia in 2015. Today, we talk about kindness, so welcome to the politics of everything, Hugh. Thank you very much, Amber. It's lovely to be here. So you're obviously very accomplished and um, you're really an expert at what you do, but what were your childhood ambitions? Did you have something that young Hugh McKay wanted to be when he grew up and did you end up doing that? Mm, No, I didn't, and it was an absolute passion. Throughout primary school, my single focus was on the ambition to become a bus driver, and it was really only when I moved to secondary school that that ambition waned. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and through secondary school, I wonder I why, was... Hugh. Is there anything that's uh, bringing on that chuckle? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I suppose it's called growing up. Uh, although I still hanker after bus driving, and I do envy bus drivers. I think they have a great life, and it's a great community service. But now, in secondary school, Amber, I was one of those completely aimless kids. I had absolutely no idea what I might do, so I just fluctuated all the time between this possibility or that possibility, but never a burning ambition, never any clarity at all. And really, I, I actually recall the moment when I walked out of, the, out of the actual school gate on my last day of secondary school thinking, I wonder what will happen next. Wow. Uh, and what did happen was that my father, uh, who worked in advertising, had heard of this new emerging field. We're talking about 1950, the end of 1954, beginning of 55, called public opinion research. And he thought that might be quite interesting for young Hugh. So I got a job in a public opinion research business. This is pre-computers, <laughs> pre-television. And I was hooked. I mean, it, it became my lifelong career. It, it changed in various ways. But that first year in that job, 
really hooked me and I've been at it more or less ever since. Fantastic. Look, your new book is called The Kindness Revolution and it's a great title, but I'm wondering how that book came to be and what we can expect to learn when we read it. Yeah, the book came about as a result of a series of conversations with a publisher who said he thought it was time for me to do a kind of wrap-up of my work and and summarise some of the main themes of my research over the last, well, 60 years, but also to use 2020, the bushfires followed by the the COVID uh, pandemic, as the reference point, as a sort of jumping-off point for this long-term review. So that's what it is. It's it's a combination of very contemporary, because I'm looking at what's happening in Australia right now, but also the long view, some some deeper reflections on human nature. I think the things that would be that, that readers might get from it, and, and this would be more reminders rather than dramatic learnings, I hope. <laughs> but first of all, the, the big reminder that we humans are social creatures, that we absolutely need each other. We need families, neighbourhoods, communities, groups of all kinds to nurture us and sustain us and give us that all-important sense of belonging that is so fundamental to the mental and emotional health of human beings. Uh, We're hardwired to cooperate, Mm. uh, which means, of course, we're also hardwired for kindness because kindness is the magic ingredient in how we do build social harmony. So that that would be the first big learning. I think the second one, or big reminder, the second one would be that our society has actually been pushing us in the opposite direction. When you look at all the big social changes that have been transforming Australia and the West over the last 30 or 40 years, you're looking at a cumulative effect of promoting individualism, separateness, difference, and, and and an emphasis on independence rather than interdependence, which has led to a kind of social fragmentation, more people being socially isolated, and as an inevitable result of that, the epidemics that we're now living with of loneliness, anxiety, and depression. So that's a big a big theme in the book. Uh, but the third the third one, uh, and I don't think we need reminding of it at the moment, but it's, it's a reminder that adversity does build resilience, that even though the really tough passages of our lives are no fun to go through, whether it's personal, a relationship breakdown or a bereavement or a retrenchment, or societal, like a war or a depression or a pandemic, none of us chooses to go through these experiences. And yet looking back, we almost always say, well, that really did, that was the making of us, you know, that really clarified our values. Uh, that really got our priorities straight. We had time to think about what really matters. And and th- th- those were life-changing experiences. And I think the present situation is one of those. I think we are going to, we're not enjoying it, but I think we're going to look back and recognize that we learned some pretty profound lessons from going through all this. Mm, Hopefully. So what makes someone kinder? And we just talked about, I guess, those big moment experiences that can be very challenging, like losing your job or being forced to kind of isolate like we are during a pandemic. Is it about experiencing something hard and then realizing you need to be kinder, you want to be kinder to yourself and to others? Is it something we're born with or is it more transactional kindness at at its core? No, I think it's something definitely not transactional. I think it's 
something we're born with, Amber. Neuroscientists who can now peep into our brains in a way that and see what's going on in a way that psychologists and philosophers could previously just speculate about. They say there is a cooperative centre in the in the human brain, which you would expect. I mean, here we are, a social species. Obviously, we are, our genetic inheritance is the equipment to cooperate. And that means, as, a, as an American neurobiologist, I think he's called, recently wrote, we're hardwired for the golden rule. In other words, it is absolutely natural for humans to treat each other well, to be kindly disposed towards each other. And by the way, that has nothing to do with whether we like each other or agree with each other. It's just how we make the world a better place. It's how we build social harmony. Now, as I've just mentioned, there are things that can drag us away from that, of course. We can become less kind because we've drifted in the direction of being more individualistic and more obsessed with our own personal identity rather than our sense of belonging. The ego can get in the way, but it's there in all of us. And the big thing is to encourage it in ourselves, in each other, and especially, of course, in our kids, to recognise that in the same ways we're all born with a language centre in the brain, but that has to be nurtured. We have to learn to speak a particular language. Well, we do have to encourage this natural tendency towards kindness so that it doesn't get stifled by other pressures. And we can do that uh, by mainly by example, uh, by parents acting kindly towards each other and neighbours and so on. And kids learn from example better than anything else, but also by explicit nurturing, by by talking about the need for kindness and by saying when the kids come home, you know, was who were you kind to today or what was the nicest, kindest thing you saw today? We hope that some of our leaders will encourage kindness. Uh, even some, I notice now Helga's Bread are suddenly running an advertising campaign that's promoting the idea of an act of, ki- act of kindness between neighbours. So it is important to be reminded of this but also to recognise that it's a natural tendency. Well, that's a perfect segue into that research, which uh, you've just sort of alluded to, the Helga's Kindness Index, and McCrindle actually developed it, so it's actually not your research, but it is a first-of-its-kind index examining the state of kindness in Australia, and they did survey around 3,520, to be exact, Australians in June this year, so just probably before we went into these hard lockdowns across the country for, you know, some of us the second time, some of us the sixth time. The score is calculated based on several factors, such as our behaviour, attitudes, thoughts and feelings towards three kindness virtues identified of empathy, altruism and reflection. And I'd just like to sort of share with the audience some of the key learnings from the index in case they haven't seen it. So generosity or altruism and empathy were the top kindness virtues displayed amongst those surveyed. And on average, Aussies perform about 16 acts of kindness a week, so more than two a day. Well done, us. But what I found was interesting is that two-thirds of us hold back from performing acts of kindness for a few reasons, including not knowing how it will be received. So does that surprise you in any way? It's disappointing, but I don't know that it's really surprising. Uh, And by the way, just back on that list of the, the, the top the top virtues displayed, I mean, generosity, altruism is, of course, number one, because that's not about, as you mentioned, being transactional before, that's 
definitely not transactional. We don't act kindly in order to be treated kindly. We act kindly because that's the right thing to do. But yeah, I think what was significant about those people, the two thirds of us who hold back uh, sometimes, I think this is, I mean, this sounds a bit brutal, Amber, but I think this is an ego problem. The ego is the enemy of kindness because the ego is all about me and kindness is all about others. Uh, And Mm. so when the ego gets in the way, we can think, oh, I wonder if this, I could be embarrassed, you know, maybe people won't respond well to this. I'm not sure how this will be received or, oh, gee, if I go over there and help that bloke who obviously needs a hand, that'll take me out of my comfort zone or, you know, I might, I might get my coat dirty or I might get wet because it's raining or something. These things, of course, can inhibit our natural tendency for kindness and we need to crash through those barriers and remind ourselves that as humans on the planet, our job is to make the world a better place. And we don't do it by hiding behind the shell of a fragile ego, but we do it by reaching out and responding to the needs of other people. Absolutely. Just even talking about those acts of kindness, one which is very popular in in my family, it might be my Jewish heritage, is food. Food is a popular way that we show kindness in our culture and generosity. And, you know, you you can't leave my house with actually out being completely over full and you've got to take something home with you. That's how it rolls around here. But that that index we mentioned showed that four in five of us believe that sharing that meal with friends or family is a powerful way to display kindness. And I'd say it's, you know, been the case for millennia, not just a new generation thing. Meanwhile, two thirds of Aussies believe that helping our neighbours is something that we should do more of. In your observations, and I guess I'm probably coming with some bias here because I used to live in in the big city of Sydney and I have moved now to a more regional part of New South Wales. Is your observation that, you know, those close-knit regional communities sort of cliches in some ways mean that people are more willing to kind of step in and help each other, whereas sometimes depending where you live and how you live in an urban environment, say in an apartment block where you could live there for years and never really know your neighbours and people kind of keep to themselves, do you think it's sort of divided along those lines or is there more fluidity in that? Uh, I think there is a bit more fluid fluidity, but the stereotypes are generally true on this subject, Amber. It is easier for people to feel as if they belong to a functioning community when that community is smaller. The bigger it gets, the harder it is to feel that sense of connection. Yet what I think is lovely and remarkable is that even in some of our big sprawling urban areas, people do manage to foster a strong spirit of community within the local neighbourhood. It might just be a few streets or a little peninsula jutting into Sydney Harbour or, you know, a cluster of houses around a local shopping centre or something. But just, just it doesn't always need a geographical thing like the town boundary. It just needs some people to act like good neighbours and to foster the neighbourhood feeling wherever they live. I've been very moved over the years by some of the stories I've heard of strong community spirit in the most unlikely places. You know, I remember uh, listening to a, a group of young mothers who lived in Mascot right near the airport saying, why would anyone ever want to live anywhere but mascot. You know, the the community's so strong here. And I looked around and I thought, well, it hasn't got the sort of physical features that you would associate with that, but people can make it work. It just requires our 
determination to be good neighbours. And of course, as you say, that is easier, no doubt, in regional and rural settings, but we can do it anywhere. Absolutely. I guess it's all up to us to make that effort. So do you think Australians are known to be kinder than other countries in your in your experience and in your research? I mean, we've obviously got those cliches of mateship, which has kind of, you know, been at the forefront of our national identity, particularly in times of crisis. And I think of moments like the Black Saturday bushfires um, or when there's been a natural disaster or war or a major event. But what about everyday kindness? I sort of think sometimes, you know, those big crisis moments bring people together, but then once that passes, how do you have that legacy of everyday kindness? Yeah, first of all, I don't think it is uniquely Australian. We'd need to see this Helga's Kindness Index applied to other countries to make the comparison. But I think what we're talking about is human human tendencies, not Australian tendencies. In fact, I think it's a bit offensive to other countries to say, oh, we're kinder. Or, you know, I mean, we talk about mateship as though we invented it. But of course, we yes. had liberté, égalité, fraternité a long time before we'd thought of those things in Australian culture. So I, I, think, I think we need to think of this as our human tendency, uh, human virtues, human values, not specifically Australian ones. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's right. I just think we're quite competitive as a nation and we've just come off the back of the Olympics. They're in the middle of the Paralympics, so I've probably just got that country versus country thing happening in some ways. But I think you're right. We'd have to do this similar survey elsewhere to kind of get a real sense of that. Look, you do say kindness is our natural state of being, and I've got a quote here that we are social species that rely on kindness for harmony with one another. It's these kind interactions that sustain and nurture us. During times of turmoil, which Australia and the world has experienced over the last 18 months, we often reflect on life and use it as a chance to reset. Kindness helps us deal with these tough times and heal. And I think that's really powerful and poignant. But I suppose, you know, in my everyday life and probably just the work that I do, I do see on social media, for example, lots of divisive comments, particularly while we're in lockdown and there's a lot of views on everything from vaccination to lockdowns to economic realities, we are facing ongoing challenges and being told to stay home and not socialise how we are used to and how we probably prefer to, how can we make sure that we retain some kindness when we are facing really hard times and I guess a lot of people's mental health is at stake at the moment? That's very true, Amber. As I mentioned earlier, if we are socially isolated, we do become, well, loneliness is a disease and there's a lot of loneliness around. Even before the pandemic, 25% of Australian adults reported feeling lonely most of the time. Anxiety and depression, they're associated with social isolation. And of course, solitary confinement is the worst punishment we can think of in our criminal justice system. So we have to be alert to the dangers of this. And and it doesn't bring out the best in all of us all the time, because we're all struggling with that sense of independence, what about me, and that deeper sense of interdependence where we recognise that we share a common humanity. So I think we've got to recognise, well, first of all, recognise that kindness is really the best cure for loneliness. We can still show acts of kindness to people and we need, when when we're feeling a bit irritated or a bit frustrated or a bit lonely, a bit blue, a bit isolated, kindness is, generally speaking, the best cure for this. 
chat over the fence to a neighbour, keep your distance by all means, or drop a you know basket of lemons on someone's doorstep. I heard a wonderful story about two young men. I was I was with them in a chat room in a webinar, both in their early thirties. They both moved into new accommodation at the beginning of the first lockdown last the national lockdown last year, and they both responded in exactly the same way to finding themselves in a street where they'd never lived before. They wrote a little note saying, I'm new to the street, I don't know anyone, but here's my phone number. If you need any help, you know, shopping, prescriptions picked up from the chemist or your lawn mown or something, uh, give us a call. And they put that, they put those notes in the letterboxes of all the people around them. And I thought that was a terrific example of how well we can behave in a crisis. I don't think they would have done that if they'd moved house and there wasn't a lockdown. Yeah. So well, they might have been busy running off to work and doing all the things that, that yeah. we usually busy ourselves with in some ways. Yeah, that's right, and perhaps gradually getting to know the neighbours. But we can see these kind of moments of hardship and difficulty and frustration, we can see them as an opportunity. I've heard other lovely stories like a woman who came from a large household at the checkout in the supermarket buying a number of items that were over the the permitted limit. So they were put aside. She wasn't allowed to buy them. And the woman behind her in the queue bought those things and followed the other woman out to the car park and said, here you are, you, you take these. Oh, said, that's oh, so lovely. No, 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 it's a gift. Now that's seizing the opportunity created by a crisis and turning the crisis into something lovely. Absolutely. Where we bring out what Abraham Lincoln described as the better angels of our nature. They usually prevail. We just need to remind ourselves that a crisis, a difficulty like the present one, is an opportunity to shine. Yeah, no, that's great advice. So obviously you've had a very long and illustrious career and a very accomplished you, but you must have had a couple of mentors or probably more than a couple along the way. I'd love you to identify one or two and explain to us what impact they had on your life and your career. Yeah, I think I think you're overplaying my career a bit. Oh, you? no, <laughs> I've been tracking you for years, so there you go. Uh, no, that's very kind. But, yeah, of course there have been, and there are two in particular that – Stand out. One was a, a, a colleague back when I was a 20-year-old, well, younger than that, about an 18-year-old, uh, who's still a friend, a man called Robert McLaughlin. And he came to work at the research company where I was working, where I had been told by the boss that I had to study economics because economics was the qualification you needed in the research business. And I hated studying economics and I was very bad at it. But Robert McLaughlin inspired me to abandon economics and embrace the study of psychology and philosophy, which absolutely transformed my outlook on life, but also transformed my approach to the whole business of public opinion research and what what role it could play in society and so on. So I've always been grateful to Robert for, for starting the process that turned me into a social psychologist. The other mentor was an older person who was my boss at a time when I was running a research company which was owned by an advertising agency. His name was Keith Cousins. And 
he really encouraged the development of a whole lot of experimental research into the communication process. It was about advertising in that context, but more generally, of course, what we were learning was about how mass communication and human communication in particular works. So it was unusual for a man running an advertising agency to be so generous in funding and supporting experimental research, which again, was another like like the second stage of the rocket uh, in my professional career. Absolutely. Another well, great examples. So if you could choose a favourite book, and it can't be your own here, I'm sorry, song or <laughs> film, what would it be and why? And this can be super serious or you could blow us away with something very frivolous and fun. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you a serious book and, and a not so serious song and film. The serious book is a book that I sort of I don't quite carry it around with me, but I always have it near me. It's a book called On Becoming a Person by Carl Rogers, the American psychotherapist, who is a professional hero of mine. I've learned so much from the work of Carl Rogers. I'm not a I'm not a psychotherapist, but from his work. In psychotherapy, I've learned so much about human behavior, and it has changed the way I've gone about conducting my research over the years. So On Becoming a Person by Carl Rogers is my book. The song, well, lately, since The Kindness Revolution was published, I've been playing over and over on my smartphone, Glenn Campbell singing Try a Little Kindness. Oh, lovely. (laughs) And film, well... This is not my favourite film, but it's the film I've seen more time. I've seen it five times. In fact, probably more than five times because I've, I've I've gone back recently to see what all the fuss was about. But I saw it five times in adolescence because it was the film I took a girl to on a first date, and I was remarkably unsuccessful. So I had five first dates, all seeing high society. I know the movie back. <laughs> That is crazy. Thank you for sharing that. A final takeaway message for us today on the politics of kindness. I think there are two, Amber. The first is remember that kindness is our obligation to the species we belong to and remember that you don't have to like someone, you don't have to agree with someone, you don't even have to know someone in order to show kindness to them. And I think that's one of the loveliest things about being human, that we are capable of kindness, even in the absence of any affection or any emotion. It can just be a way of being in the world. And the other takeaway, I think, is let's remember that example is everything, that our examples of kindness create ripples that encourage other people to act kindly as well. Thank you so much, Hugh McKay. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today about the politics of kindness. And until next time, everyone, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.